Well, good morning. Nice to have you here today. Uh, this is the third sermon in our Who Am I series on the book of Romans, and let's just be upfront about it, shall we? I mean, Romans is anything but an easy read. This is the tough stuff of theology, but it's also the necessary stuff. A couple of weeks ago, David said that the common denominator between the church in Rome and the church in Holland, Michigan, is that we're going to have growing pains. In, in fact, that was his two-word summary of sermon number one, growing pains. And then last week, Gary said we have no excuses, remember? No excuses. No excuses for what we do and no excuses for, for judging the things that other people do. Growing pains and no excuses. And now, this week, the two-word sermon summary is blind spots. Blind spots. Paul says that we all have 20-20 vision when it comes to looking at other people's sins, but, but sometimes we have some blind spots when it comes to looking at our own sins. And so he issues this word of caution for those who think they have it all together spiritually. I want you to take a look at it with me. It's from the book of Romans, chapter 2. We're going to begin reading at verse 17. Now, you. Notice he gets pretty personal pretty fast. You. Now, you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law. Now, I, I just need to stop here. I want to point out something. Did you notice all the ifs here? I mean, if you call yourself a Christian, or if you call yourself a Jew, or if you call yourself faithful, if you rely, if you know, Linguistically, whenever you see a string of ifs like that, it's always followed by a then. If and then go together in Scripture like peas and carrots or, or, or peanut butter and jelly. But before we get to the then, we need to kind of unpack the ifs. And to really understand where we're going with all this, we need to remember where we've been. Three different times in last week's lesson, Paul condemned those living outside the faith. They have no excuse, he said. He even said that, that God gave them over to their sinfulness. Paul is simply recognizing that we live in a fallen world, right? And, and as he said it, maybe under our breaths, a lot of us said, amen, brother, preach it. Tell those people what they need to hear. But in today's text, he kind of turns the tables a little bit. And he directs his comments at us. And now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you think you're living out the law, and, and as he said it, 
immediately those Romans said, what do you mean if? What do you mean if? Of course we're Jews. Of course we're people of the law. Can't you see the tzitzit on our robe? Haven't you noticed the, the tefillim on, on our foreheads? When you go to our houses, don't you see the mezuzahs on our doorposts? Of course we're Jews. Yes, Paul says, I, I can see that. But the problem isn't my vision. It's yours. What we have here is a problem of perspective. Let me tell you a little story. Actually, it's not my story. I wish it was my story. It's a great story, but it's John Orberg's story, so I've got to give him credit. Uh, he talks about this, this woman who was late for her plane. She knew that, that she didn't have time to eat, and so she stopped at one of those little kiosks along the way, you know, and she bought this package of cookies, stuck it in her purse, ran down to the gate, got on the plane, and as she did... She breathed a sigh of relief. She sat down in the aisle seat and she set her purse in the seat between her and the guy who was sitting in the window seat. And the plane took off. As it did, there was some turbulence, you know. And, and she looked over and noticed that her cookies had fallen out of her purse. And so just as she was about to reach and grab those cookies... This man in the aisle seat picked up her bag of cookies, opened it with his teeth, reached in, and took one. Oh, she was mortified. You would never do that if I was a man, she said to herself. And so, in disgust, she reached over, took one of the cookies, and ate it, and chewed as loud as she could, and gave him a really stern look. Well, after that, the great cookie war was on. I mean, every time she'd eat one, he'd eat one. <laughs> Finally, there was only one left. The two of them looked at each other like two gunfighters at the OK Corral. But before she could reach for it, he grabbed it. He broke it in two, and he offered her half. She folded her arms and refused to take the cookie in disgust. The rest of the flight, she never said a word to him, never looked at him again. Then when she got off the plane and went down to the baggage claim center, she opened her purse, was looking for her baggage claim ticket, and there she saw her package of cookies. Like I said, sometimes, sometimes we have a problem of perspective. Things might look different to us if we sat in another seat. For example, if you sat in the pastor's seat for a while, you know what? You would see some things that maybe you wouldn't otherwise notice. For example, once when I was at community, I was sitting in my office and a man walked in. He was angry. He was yelling as he came through the door. He had his daughter and his little granddaughter. She was like six months old. 
He was yelling so much I could hardly understand what he was saying. But he said this for clear and certain. He was going to sue us. He was going to sue us. When I got him to settle down a little bit, I said, what are you going to sue us about? He said, what happened to my granddaughter? We just came from the doctor. She's got gonorrhea, and she got it in your nursery. Somebody did something there. I know they did, he said. What do you do with that? I tried to calm him down. I said, have you called the police? He said, no. I said, well, we better call the police. He said, you better call a lawyer. I said, no, I think we better call the police. <laughs> There'll be time for lawyers later. To make a really long, really ugly story short, uh, a couple months later, he was convicted of molesting his own granddaughter. Oh, I could tell you stories. I could tell you about the deacon who, who used to steal money every week out of the plate. He always volunteered to be the one to carry the cash back and put it in the safe until they figured out why. I could tell you stories. I could tell you a story about a mother who locked her daughter in her bedroom and then set the house on fire. She died. Sometimes life is a matter of perspective. Sometimes where we're sitting gives us a different vision. We see things. Huh? Paul had been around church long enough to see some things. And he said, you better check your blind spot. He wrote this letter to the Romans and he said, you're not perfect either, you know. I mean, we live in a fallen world and, and you're part of that as well. And you know what? I think most of us know that. We don't, we don't like to look at it, but we know it. Barna says that people outside the church say we're judgmental, legalistic, and hypocritical. And now, you and I know that's not true. At least, it's not true for the vast majority of people inside the church. But, but sometimes, perception is everything, isn't it? If you call yourself a Jew, Paul says, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed in the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, and a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. If all of that is true, Paul says, you then, there's our then, by the way, you knew we would get there, you then who want to teach others? Why don't you teach yourself? S sometimes when you read Paul's letters, you want to say, 
Ooh, man, you could lighten that up just a little bit, couldn't you? <laughs> Take a look at this picture with me. You want to put it up? Maybe not. What I was going to show you was a, a picture of a blind spot monitor in the rearview mirror of a newer car. Do you, do you have one of those? It's up there. Oh, it's behind me. It's just not going in that direction. All right, now you can see it. See that little orange light right there? That little orange light lights up. Now, if you're driving a car like mine, we don't have these things, but your car probably has one. Uh, and, and it lights up if something is in your blind spot. In a lot of the newer cars, it even starts beeping if you start to turn in that direction. It's called a blind spot monitor. Pretty fancy stuff. Imagine if we all had blind spot monitors for sin. Huh? What if there was this little light right on the end of our nose and it would light up and flash like that whenever we were sinning? Wouldn't that be great? I mean, I could sit up here and I could say, oh, I can see back there. I know what you're thinking. And don't you smile. And choir, can you keep the beeping down, please? I'm trying to preach here. Of course, if I said all that, then you could probably see, too, that my nose was blinking like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. My guess is, if we all had those blind spot monitors, we'd walk around like this. We'd try to hide it. We try to pretend, but of course we don't. And so instead, too often, we can sound like that Pharisee who said, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, like robbers and evildoers and adulterers and, and this tax collector. Huh? And I know that, that might be a little harsh too, but come on, admit it. We're... We're comparers, aren't we? I mean, don't you find yourself comparing your sins to other people's sins? And usually, you feel better, right? We're comparers. It's part of being human. It's why Jesus said, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not see the plank in your own eye? We compare. When I was in high school, my curfew was midnight. It seemed terribly unfair to me at the time. I mean, my mother used to say, well, nothing good happens after midnight, Danny. Your mom probably said that too. Uh, I wasn't sure, but in my heart of hearts, I thought a lot of good things happened after midnight, but my curfew was midnight, and so... I came home, but one day at supper, I was, I was kind of lobbying my dad for a little more time, uh, needling him, asking him questions, telling him about my friends, and, and immediately I went into comparison mode. I mean, all my friends can stay out later than me. I said, it's not fair. I'm not a baby, you know. And that's when my dad said it. He said, fine, 
Do you know, when somebody says fine, usually it's not fine, right? But this time, it really was fine. Fine, he said, fine. From now on, your curfew is breakfast. Well, I thought my mother was going to choke on the tuna noodle casserole. I mean, but my dad's tone was so strong that she didn't say a word. And from then on, until I went away to college, my curfew was breakfast. I'll tell you what, that gave me bragging rights at school. All of my friends thought I had the cool dad. Years later, when I had kids and curfews of my own to deal with, one day, my dad and I were out fishing, and I said, Hey, Dad, remember, remember when you said my curfew was breakfast? He said, Yeah. I said, What were you thinking? <laughs> and he said to me, I was thinking I was really tired of all the comparing. Seemed like every conversation I had with you, you were saying something like, well, my friends get to stay out later than me. My friends' dads all let them have a new car. My friends' dad did this. My friends' dad did that. And besides, I knew they all had a curfew, and so you're going to be home about 15 minutes after the latest curfew of one of your friends. So it wasn't that big a deal. You ended up rolling in around 12.30, quarter to one. The point is, I think, I think sometimes God can get a little tired of all the comparing. The question is not, are we better than they are? The question is, are we better than we were yesterday or last month or last year? Is this thing called sanctification really happening in our lives. Yes, we have the law. Yes, we have the scriptures. But is it making a difference? Or is our sinfulness hiding somewhere in our blind spot? That's, that's really what Paul is saying. Paul loved the law. You know what? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As to the law, he says, perfect. It amazes me every time I read it. And I think in Romans, Paul refers to the law so much because he knows it was their go-to list as well. It was their source of comparison for the community. It was their list. And, and, and like them, I think, I think we all have a list. Maybe it's the law. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's written down. Maybe it's just in our heads. But, but we all have a list. For example, when, when I was a kid, some kids couldn't ride their bikes on Sunday. Other kids couldn't play baseball. Still others couldn't cut the grass. For me, it was pretty simple. We only had one rule at our house, and that rule was no fishing on Sunday. Now, 
I may have told you this before, but one day I said to my dad, uh, I don't get it, Dad. I can play baseball. I can ride my bike. I can do anything I want unless we're at Grandma Janning because then, of course, I have to sit and keep my tie on. But, but otherwise, I can do anything I want on Sunday except fishing. Why does God care so much about fishing? And my dad said, well, it's not that God cares so much about fishing. It's that I care so much about fishing. If I went fishing on Sunday, particularly if they were biting, I probably wouldn't come in and go to church at night. Remember when we used to have church at night? You know, when he said that to me, it, it sounded right. But the more I've thought about it, the more I'm drawn back to Jesus' words from Mark 2. The Sabbath, Jesus says, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God gave us this day of rest to meet our needs, not so that we could meet the needs of the law. And, and, and so... I understand when I read Paul's letter, it can be a little hard. But let me tell you, don't give up. Stay with it. Stay with it. Keep reading this letter. Because despite how it feels in the beginning, this letter really is all about grace. It's all about grace. This is what changed the heart of Martin Luther. This letter. It's all about grace. This is really what changed the world. This letter. This is the main theology textbook for Christians all over the world. Paul says, can, can I talk to you who are so rigorously and so righteously trying to keep up with the law? You've kind of turned the God who loves you into this squinty-eyed little judge whose favor can only be won by legalistic adherence to an endless list of laws. And that's not God. That's not God at all. God didn't give us the law to fix us. He gave us the law to remind us that we need fixing. You see, the law is like an x-ray, I think. Uh, it doesn't heal, it just reveals. It shows us how fractured our relationship is with God. And, and the fact is, no matter how obedient we might be, we will never be obedient enough to meet the standards. That's what Paul is trying to tell us. Legalism is Christianity spoiled. It's, it's really the sour milk of the Gospels. If we reduce it to correctly observing the law, it's only a matter of time before we condemn ourselves. We're not made righteous by following the rules. We're made righteous by following Jesus. It's, it's all about him. 
a number of years ago, um, I invited my friend Pat Kelly to uh, an event we were having at, at Camp Geneva. Pat was an all-star outfielder. Um, he played for the Twins. He, he played for the White Sox. He played for the Indians and the Orioles. After his baseball career, he became an evangelist, and, and he and I became really great friends. Whenever he came to Michigan, he, he'd stay at our house. He, he'd call me, and he'd say, hey, Dan, um, um, Detroit, that's not far from where you are, is it? I'd say, no, no. About three hours. He'd say, great, I'm staying at your house. Hey, 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 Dan, the Upper Peninsula, how far is that from your house? I said, that's a long ways, Pat. He said, you can come pick me up. I'm staying at your house. We'd kick Katie out of her bed, put Pat in there, and she'd go downstairs and sleep with her sister. And everybody loved it. Because Pat was just such a great guy. Whenever he was in town, he stayed at our house, and, and when we went out to Baltimore, we stayed at his. Pat's got a great story. I, I, I've told Pat Kelly stories before. I'll continue to tell them because this guy was just such an amazing Christian, you know? Uh, he and his brother, his brother is, is Leroy Kelly, by the way, professional football player, Hall of Fame, kind of a guy. Can you imagine how proud their mother must have been, huh? The two of, of those boys got in a lot of trouble when they were young. Huh? But as an adult, Pat gave his life to Jesus. And, and one day, uh, he, he was so filled with the Holy Spirit, uh, he's walking up to the plate and he says to his manager, Earl Weaver, hey, Earl, I'm walking with Jesus now. And Earl said to him, I'd rather have you walk with the bases loaded. <laughs> Pat could tell stories about baseball that, that just brought it right to your heart. And that's what he was doing at Camp Geneva. This was Camp Rainbow. I don't know if you know what Camp Rainbow is, but it's a camp for inner city kids. Uh, um, and, and all these kids are sitting there hanging on his every word. As Pat's talking, I can, I can just see they're listening. And afterwards, he did what we're so afraid to do in the Reformed Church. He invited them to come forward and pray with them. And this one little boy came up, and he gave his life to Jesus. Pat gave him a Bible. It was, it was one of those red leather Bibles, you know, the kind that that has the, the red letters of Jesus inside and, and has a red leather cover outside. I mean, this was a really good-looking Bible. He gave this kid a Bible, and, and a couple of days later, Pat and I were back at Camp Geneva, and, and we were kind of gathering around with kids. He was going to speak again, was what they call the campfire. And sure enough, there's this kid. And Pat says to him, hey, where's your Bible? And he goes, shh, 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 not so loud. Somebody's going to hear you, man. He said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I, I put that Bible in a plastic bag, and I buried it behind the cabin. 
Pat said, why'd you do that? He said, well, where I come from, you got something that nice, somebody's going to steal it. You see, uh, he had a different perspective than we did about things like that. Pat assured him nobody was going to steal his Bible there at camp. But he was having a hard time understanding. I mean, spending a week at Camp Geneva was like being in a different world for this kid. He got to eat the same food as everybody else. He got to sleep in the same cabin as everybody else. He got to swim in the same pool like everybody else. And when he looked around, everybody else was doing the same thing too. For the first time in his life, there was no fear. There was no hunger. There was no threat of violence. There was only Jesus. Just Jesus. For him, the whole experience was, was surreal. Too good to be true. He got to spend an entire week in this magical place where, where who he was and, and where he came from didn't matter. And you know what? What Paul is really saying is that's what the church is supposed to be like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a fallen world and we're part of it. The only difference between us and them, whoever them really is, is that we've got Jesus. We've got the grace you sent in your son. And we hold on to that and we share that. That's what the church does. That's what the church does. We remind each other that we've got some blind spots. That we're not as good as we think we are. But that Jesus is better than we can hope for. And so, Lord, today, more than anything else, we, we thank you for him. It is what binds us together in our faith. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.